Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. Now on today's episode, we are going to be talking to Sean Taylor who has built up a career for himself as a data scientist. He's been working in this field for more than 10 years now. Uh, Most recently, he worked as a research scientist and then a research scientist manager at Facebook. And then he was a data science manager at Lyft for close to three years. So he brings a lot of experience in this field with him. Uh, In terms of his educational background, he has a bachelor's in information systems from University of Pennsylvania. And then he also has a PhD in information systems from NYU Stern School of Business. In today's episode, broadly speaking, there are two parts to my discussion with Sean. In the first half of the discussion with Sean, we talk about how Sean has built up a large network of like-minded people on Twitter, how he has shared a lot of content on Twitter about data science, and how that has helped him attract a lot of people who are interested in the same field as him. In the other half of the discussion, we talk about his thoughts on working in the field of data science, the kind of projects you work on, and also his tips for candidates who are interested in this field, including things like the kind of questions that you should be asking and thinking about when evaluating a specific opportunity on a team or with a company. So I hope you'll enjoy this discussion. And with that, let's now listen to Sean. Hey, Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know I reached out to you on Twitter and I really appreciate you just uh, accepting my request. Oh, I always love talking about this kind of stuff and I think it's fun. So I'm excited to talk to you. All right. So yeah, let's dive in. Uh, I, I have your LinkedIn profile open in front of me and it looks like you've built a career for yourself in data science. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been in this space for close to 10 years now, right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, depending on how you count, maybe even a little bit longer. So it's, yeah, it's, I feel quite old now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, but it, it's super amazing. I mean, you've been at Facebook, you were a research scientist, followed by being a research scientist manager. Uh, you were there for about six years, I think. And then more recently, you were a data science manager at Lyft. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a fair summary. Um, I, I I do also count some of the academic work as being data science adjacent too. But yeah, it's uh, those are the two main ones for sure. One of the things that really stood out to me is that uh, I mean I found you on Twitter, and the reason I found you on Twitter is because you're almost like a data science influencer. You have forty four thousand followers, which is super impressive. Congratulations! <laughs> how how did that happen? Uh, I probably because I use Twitter too much uh, would be the first thing. I, I've used Twitter for a long time and 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 often, so that's probably part of it. Um, it has been a little confusing to me that I, I get so much attention in that environment, and um, 
I don't really take any like make, make any special effort to grow that group of people, but I do like to talk about what I'm thinking about a lot. And so I, I guess if I had to explain how it happened, it would just be like, I, I work very openly as much as possible. And I love telling people about what I'm doing and I love asking questions. And so I think maybe that just naturally stimulates a lot of discussion in a place like Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. you know, tell us, tell us a little bit more about this. Was it, was it a conscious decision on your part to build up some sort of a following or, you know, maybe like your personal brand? as a data scientist, or it, it just kind of happened organically? Uh, I never, I never tried if, if that's what inorganic means. Um, I think I, I do, I do like to use it and I enjoy it. So it comes quite naturally. Um, but there was never a point where I said, Oh, I need to, I need to grow the number of followers. Um, and in fact, I think for a long time, I had very few followers and I was, I was using Twitter back in graduate school. I was just sort of like, you know, talking about, you know, installing Python packages and how annoying it might be or other, yeah, okay. other more banal stuff back then. Um, but I guess, you know, uh, using it for a long time, just and using it, I, I always tell people if they want to have a lot of followers, it's like, it's, it's a lot, you have to write a lot of tweets. <laughs> <laughs> so it just takes a long time to write that many. And so having just used it for a long time, I think that's mainly where, where folks come from, but, but also maybe there's a little bit of a vacuum for hearing about what people are really doing in their jobs these days. Mm -hmm. Um, and so Twitter is a place where people can kind of find out, Hey, like, here's, here's what people are doing at Facebook or Lyft. Mm -hmm. And, um, and maybe there's something attractive about that because it's hard to get that information elsewhere. I mean, if you were to analyze your own Twitter stream, uh, what are the kind of things that you typically tend to tweet about? Uh, so one thing, I, I guess there's some fraction of it, which is, uh, I feel a little embarrassed about is kind of like what I would frame as unsolicited advice, Twitter, <laughs> where you, you say, here's, here's something that people should do or something, something that I think is particularly successful. Um, hmm. and, uh, so I have a lot of opinions like that because I, I worked for a long time and I, you know, have developed some taste. So I, I do like to tell people, Hey, here's what people are doing wrong, or here's what people are doing right. Um. I I'd also like to use it to ask questions and almost treat it kind of like a search engine where the responses are generated by all the people that I know that are really smart, which is, which is a really great tool. And it's one, you know, one of the luxuries of having a lot of followers is that um, when you ask a question, it's pretty easy to yeah. get a lot of responses and, yeah. and, and that can be really valuable for, you know, drumming up ideas or, or trying to find examples for things. Um, just a couple of days ago, I asked about things that people had invested in learning that they felt like didn't pay off. Mm-hmm. And it, it really stimulated a lot of great responses. And, and I think I learned a lot from reading them and it's just kind of like fun to be able to do that. So that's another thing I like to use it for. Yeah. Um, and then just staying in touch with people and finding out what they're up to has been probably one of the primary values. Um, Knowing what people are working on and what they're interested in just kind of helps you stay on top of um, what you know what what things are happening in the world outside of your little bubble. And and those little streams of information have been really valuable in my career. It comes up a lot that people ask me, "Hey, how did you find out about mm. that that paper or that package or that mm-hmm. idea?" Often it's just, "Oh, I found out about it from someone I know on Twitter." Mm. Right, right, right. Yeah, but because I think. I think because you have, and I guess this just happened naturally for you, but because you have been tweeting so much about data science, I mean, all of these things are in some ways related to your uh, to your field. Uh, you have now, I mean, I, I'm sure there are other people, but 
today, if you search for data science on Twitter, you're the, literally the first result, I think, at least if you search <laughs> for people on Twitter who are doing data science. So I haven't yeah. tried to do that in a while, but that's, I'm very flattered that that's the case. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's literally how I found you. Um, would you like, I mean, now that this has happened, do you think that your personal brand as a data scientist, has that helped you in any way? Uh, well, I'm, I'm very interested in, in causal inference and it's hard to say if, uh, the personal brand has caused my, you know, my life or my career to be better in any way. Cause I don't, I don't know what would have happened if I didn't have a mm. Twitter account like that. Mm. I can say that, uh, I haven't changed jobs very often. So I've, I've only, um, after graduate school, I worked at Facebook and I didn't, I didn't have a large Twitter following back then. And then, um, I got my job at Lyft you know, maybe the person who hired me knew about me from Twitter. I actually don't know, mm. but you know, I can't, I can't say that I found a new job or someone has found me through Twitter. Um, so I, you know, career wise, it's hard to say that it's been a big deal for me. Um, I think that awareness of my work has probably been one of the biggest benefits. Uh, mm. so for instance, I have a, I write, I, I do write papers and blog posts and, um, I have a Python package that I worked on, uh, and an R package called profit. And I think having a Twitter following and a personal brand has been useful in getting people to pay attention mm. to those, those things that right. I work on. And, you know, that, that's certainly valuable to have other people know about what you're doing and to either to give feedback or to use it themselves and grow the projects or, um, or just to tell you, uh, you know, what they, uh, about other things that you can kind of hear about to help you do better on your next project. So, so the person, I think the personal brand mostly, I, I like it because it helps me connect with other people and find them and they find me and, and those things end up just kind of creating like better intellectual growth for me. That, that would be the way that I would think about the primary benefit. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure you're meeting a lot of interesting people and like-minded people. Like you said, like it's given you so much distribution to so many people. So as you're working on project, just getting ideas and feedback from such a large number of people. Uh, could be super, super helpful and interesting. Yeah, I think so too. And uh, I, I was also pretty um, early in meeting people in real life that I knew through Twitter. So I was doing that even very early mm. in my Twitter days because I lived, I lived in New York City and I was a graduate student. I didn't know that many people. And so it was easy to meet people that I met on Twitter. And um, and it's turned into a really big network of people that I know that have, I mean, I can't I can't say like my career is, is like, they're the, they're the source of my career success or whatever, but um, but I can say it's been really enriching for me to to just have a community of people that don't I, I, I don't think I would have met them any other way. Right. I mean, one of the reasons why I asked this is because you know one of the things that a lot of people who are interested in this field do potentially grapple with is that hey, you know, maybe I do not have a traditional background that you might need to become a data scientist. But I am really interested in this field. And, yeah. you know, that transition can be a bit challenging in just demonstrating that you have the credentials. And in some ways, you know, what you have done, I mean, you, you, you did have the background. But the fact that you're doing all of these projects and you're sharing your knowledge and you're doing these things on your website, on Twitter, that is amazing proof that, hey, clearly this person is interested in the field as well as knows what he talks about. Uh, I, I hope so. I, you know, sometimes I feel a little bit of like, I don't know enough about this to, to use 44,000 followers to tell them about, <laughs> about it. There's, you know, there's some imposter syndrome that, that creeps in, but I, but I do think that working, you know, the theme of 
me using Twitter is a little bit of like me kind of like working openly um, mm. and talking about what I'm doing and thinking about, which is also something that I do within the companies that I've worked in. Um, and I found that to be a really valuable tool. I think some people try to take their work and, you know, and keep it within their own brain and their own computer or within a couple other people. And, and, and I find that uh, for the kind of work that we do, that just being in discussions about it constantly and being really curious about how other people would think about it um, has been a really valuable tool. And I, it's, it's really hard to um, explain it, but I just, I just think that like there's this openness uh, to, to research work. And when you're really intellectually engaged by something, you almost want to be able mm. to talk to people about mm. it constantly because it's like sometimes, sometimes people will call it a rubber ducking where you have somebody that you, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're explaining something to as, as you're thinking about it. And that helps you clarify your thoughts. So may, maybe the discussion is useful just because it forces you to articulate how you're thinking about something so that other people can consume it. Um, but I, I just find it to be really indispensable tool for um, working on problems that I've faced. That's actually that's actually a really really interesting point. Uh, can you share examples, you know, I, either from projects that you worked on inside a company or just through having this following, where these discussions have led to very different uh, or like significant changes in how you were thinking about a certain thing? Yeah, it's 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 really fun to. Uh, there's one that comes to mind immediately, uh, which is so I, I worked at Lyft most recently, mm-hmm. um, which is a great company, and I really enjoyed uh, all the interesting problems there. It's just like a company with like t- so many interesting research problems that I felt like a kid in a candy store. And one of the one of the ones that came up very early on was how do you represent um, spatial data. Uh, within within the machine learning system. So it's, it's a little bit of inside baseball, but roughly when you have latitudes and longitudes and you want to put them into all your machine learning models, it's kind of not a very, that's not a very good way to represent them. And so there's all these ideas um, about how to rep- represent um, spatial data as features in a machine learning model. Um, and I, I thought about a lot of different ways of doing that. And I just started writing documents internally at Lyft to, to clarify like that the way that I thought we were currently doing it, which was using this technique called geohashes, uh, felt like it wasn't the right idea and that there were some reasons why that that was kind of causing some problems in the models that we were building. Um, and I wrote this note internally at Lyft called death to geohashes, <laughs> <laughs> which was me saying, hey, this way that we're doing things isn't, isn't good and we need to think of a better one. Um, mm. And that stimulated a lot of great discussion from other people. And I, I had a, one idea I was really enamored with um, about how to do that. And then eventually, actually, a guy on my team, Alex Chin, who's a statistician who's still at Lyft, um, just as a result of us having discussed that a bunch, came up with his own idea about how to do it which is using a technique called uh, Gaussian mixture models. And it turned out to be a really great idea. And it's something that I never would have thought of. And something I actually didn't even, hadn't even heard of before um, he proposed it. Mm. So I think just, you know, starting a conversation about something that you're working on can, is a, is a kind of, maybe it's like an improv idea of like, yes, people can yes and your idea <laughs> and, and riff on it. And then that's that dialogue is what really creates the value because a lot of the best ideas aren't going to come from your own head. That's, that's, I, I really, really like that. And do you think that some of it, some of what you're saying is also about being okay with sharing ideas that are not necessarily fully fleshed out like I think people sometimes struggle with being or they're just you know they feel vulnerable in terms of sharing something which they are not so confident about yet 
and yeah. so kind of being yeah. okay with that. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more that there's a vulnerability to talking about things before they're done. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it can be really, really limiting to, to kind of hide things until you're, <laughs> until you're done. And it's something that you have to get over. It's, it's actually like a big theme of, um, I, I've been a manager at, at two companies now. And I think one of the kind of th things that I coach people on a lot is like sharing their work, um, more openly as they're doing it. And one of the ways I frame it is bringing people along for the ride so that, you know, it, when you do work openly and then people are more likely to believe that you did good work because they saw the process by which it was made, they had some, you know, say in it mm. maybe early on and they, they could help kind of provide early feedback or, and they, and they just feel like they're part of it because they, they got to experience some of the, some of how it was done. So there's, there's a lot of value created, but it does require this, like, you know, showing people stuff that you're not quite ready to show them yet or admitting that you don't know the answer mm -hmm. to a question, even though you've been thinking about it for a long time. Um, mm -hmm. And that's that can be tough to do. And I think particularly around really, you know, pe smart people who are intimidating. Um, so I gave a yeah. talk last year at this causal inference workshop, which I, I felt very um, flattered to be invited to because the other speakers at the event were like, you know, really famous academics that I really always looked up to. And they invited me to come and talk about some of my work at Lyft. And I talked about a problem that I hadn't solved yet. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I had this big worry that I was going to show them this problem I was working on. And they were going to say, oh, the answer, we already know the answer to that. Or, you know, the answer is something that we could have solved really, really quickly. But, but instead, it, it, was, it was the opposite. It was, hey, your problem is really interesting. And, and we'd love to talk to you more about it, which is exactly the response I was hoping for. But it, but it did take, you know, me being a little vulnerable and being able to show something that wasn't really done yet. That's, yeah, I really like that. And do you think that your, your openness or your willingness to do this is perhaps one of the key ingredients in terms of why you've been able to build this following? Because I'm sure there are a lot of other people who are data scientists on Twitter and other platforms, but, you know, it, it's... You're almost, it's almost as if because you're asking questions and sharing these things that are not yet complete, you're inviting participation um, and solutions from your audience. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly hope that, that that's the impression that people get. And it's, I hope it's one of the reasons why they, they find, you know, following me to be, uh, you know, useful and engaging because I don't, I don't really claim to have all the answers mm -hmm. and I, I will speak to my experience, right? And I'm willing to do that. <laughs> And, but I'm not, I don't think I'm really ever willing to say that I know I know the right answer about anything because I, I, I know a lot of smart people that know a lot more. Any topic I can think of, I know somebody who knows a lot more about it than I do. Yeah, no, I <laughs> so, the, so there's this humbleness that I think has to come from um, hanging out with people that are really good at stuff that you, you end up just thinking there's there's no way I, I know the answer to this better than other people. And, and so you have to just kind of come into things with a beginner's mindset, almost no matter how much you know about them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of like in the spirit of, I'm, you know, I was trained as a scientist. I think as a, as a good scientist, you're always questioning whether you're really right about something, even stuff that you have studied for a long time. There's, you have to be open to the idea that, you know, the, the way that you think about a problem could be over overridden or overturned in some way when there's new evidence. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's something that I really, I think I really internalized into the way I think about solving problems and studying things. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, let's say someone looks at you and says like, hey, you know, this is so amazing. I, I would also like to have, you know, not necessarily a following, but sort of this large group of people that I can bounce ideas off of or post questions to and discuss things that I'm working on. 
how would you suggest they go about that? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think probably the easiest way is to is to work on finding a small group. I mean, to to get a large group of people, you probably have to start with a small group. Yeah. So so I think you know when I was in graduate school, I had a couple of people in my um, in my department. You know, the my my lab mates. So I had a small group of people that I was studying the same things at the same time with, um, and uh, that was that was a valuable early community for me. Um, so the people that are around you that you're working with, they're probably your best candidate because they they're thinking about the same things, and so those are the people that you want to be having a dialogue with. And I, I know people do create these kind of small groups for you know, but often they're kind of transient. It might be just the, for the course mm-hmm. that you're doing or yeah. for the project that you're on or something like that. Yeah. So maybe the, the real art of it is how do you turn a small transient group like that into something like a little bit longer term that you can kind of carry with you for longer. And, and that requires being a little bit socially proactive. You have to be willing to organize meetings with people or chats or discussions. And I, I'm very extroverted, so it's easy for me to <laughs> kind of say yes to doing video calls with friends or people that I worked with in the past or, or to reaching out to people and trying to kind of coordinate some time to, to chat with them. Mm. But I think you, you do have to put energy in to community building and to have, have people to discuss things with, because it doesn't come just for free. It's, it's mm. something that, you know, you have to invest in. Mm. Um, and then the, the Twitter thing, I, I feel like is a little bit of a red herring. I don't think anybody, you know, there shouldn't be this <laughs> advice of like go and yeah. get a large Twitter following and sort of misses the point of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really about, it could, you could get all the same value out of a very small group of people, but you're going to have to put a, a lot of effort into it for sure. Yeah. And like, and you know, just last question on this before we close this, uh, this particular section out, do you think your choice of platform, um, as a data scientist, do you, again, what did that just happen because you were spending time on Twitter or do you think in some ways Twitter has been a good, a good medium for what you have to say? That's a great question. I, I, I don't know if there's anything intrinsic to Twitter. Uh, certainly the, the need for brevity is a useful one. And so having to compress the things that you're thinking about into a short space, and that's, a, that's kind of inherent to the medium, mm-hmm. is, a, is an interesting constraint to operate under. And it forces you to clarify <laughs> what you're thinking about really carefully before you write it. And, uh, and, and also it, it makes it so that you're a little freer with sen- sending things out because there's, there's a little bit less of a burden of having to craft something right. perfect. It's, there's a little bit of like imp- imperfection is inherent mm. in the medium mm. and we all have typos in our tweets and can't correct them. Yeah. <laughs> and so we just kind of live with that. So it does, it does, maybe it does optimize a little bit for just kind of like, uh, creating like opportunities for people to, to spit things out and riff on each other's stuff a little bit um and there's also this you know just it's a place to kind of just hang out while you're bored and waiting for some of your machine learning code to continue to run (laughs) so there's a little bit of that there but i I, often i kind of lately i feel like i I wish i had invested a little bit more in a long-form medium and i probably would like to start blogging again Mm. a little more actively because because i do think that there there's certainly some limitations of just having to write everything in short form that we can't have the kinds of conversations i'd like to have sometimes so that's yeah. that's something that i that i that i think is worth identifying that as a limitation of the mediums like we just we just kind of can't have certain kinds of conversations there yeah. but it's, it's it's a great platform and i really love it a lot and i it's been pretty pretty big force for positive stuff in my life yeah yeah 
All right. So then uh, let's just quickly switch gears to, you know, just a career as a data scientist. Uh, you've touched on this a little bit in terms of the kind of projects you've worked on. But if you were to describe the role of a data scientist uh, to an outsider, how would you describe it? Wow. Yeah, that's a... Uh... We could talk about, we could do many podcasts about that, <laughs> about just that question, because it's, uh, it's, there's a big diversity of roles that are all called data scientists. And I think that that's, that's one of the primary challenges that we deal with as within that, within that role is how do we, how do we define and scope the work that, that we do to contribute toward the success of a, of a company, um, or, or any kind of organization. Um, one way that I think I like to think about it is that, uh, Data scientists produce decisions, um, and and that's a very and you have to think about decisions very abstractly. But decisions are things like even when you know when a page is rendered on Google and the search results there, those are those are all decisions that Google has made about what to display mm-hmm. in the search algorithm. Or like, should we launch this version of the app or, or and that we've been testing for a while? Um, or which market should we expand into um, are all kinds of decisions that companies face on a regular basis. Um, and they need some principles and procedures for, for deciding what to do. Um, and so that's, that's mainly the way that I think about the role of a data scientist. And, and so it turns out that the, the best way to make decisions is to bring some evidence mm-hmm. to bear on, on decisions and, and evidence that we have is in the form of data um, that we can either have internally to a company or that we're able to kind of bring in from the outside and then synthesizing that evidence and estimating the things that we need to estimate and then ultimately landing on what should we do as a result of the evidence that we have is I think primarily the way that I think about the role of the data scientist. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, you know, and I, that someone who's not that familiar might with tech might uh, struggle with a little bit is that if you sort of look at the broad umbrella of data and analytics, you tend to find these multiple flavors of roles. So there's, of course, data scientists, but then you also have, you know, analysts and sort of all kinds of analysts. And and I understand, as I understand, there's a, a really quite a big distinction in the two roles. So would you agree with that? And if yes, what is that distinction? Yeah, that, I mean, the, the distinction between a scientist and an analyst, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm willing to to, you know, make any claims about that. Um, I, I think sometimes those titles are, are used to just kind of create art, artificial distinctions between people that are really working on very similar things or, or to like kind of highlight, like maybe there's some difference in qualifications for the role. Like, you know, maybe some somebody has a master's degree or a PhD and somebody mm. else doesn't. Mm. Uh, or, or maybe there are distinctions that are made about what tools that people use or what level of the stack that they're operating mm. in. So there's some people that use like Excel to perform the same task that someone else performs in SQL that someone else performs in Python or R and, but they're all fundamentally doing this can be doing the same things or they could be doing different things and they just have different ways of approaching the same problems. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, the other problem with the data scientist versus analyst distinction or, or even all the other role, data engineering would be another one I would throw out or, right. or that they operate at different levels of, uh, of the stack. So like data engineers are concerned with making things run reliably and just making sure that clean data is available for other people to do things. But that's like, you know, and completely, um, completely necessary for people at higher levels of the stack to do their jobs. And then there's people who are data scientists that are even building apps and, you know, websites and app that people can use. 
to kind of access and make better decisions. So there's just there's so many different ways that people work and qualifications that they have. But, but ultimately, um, we're, we're all trying to do the same thing, which is take the data that we have available and make a positive impact mm. on the, co- the companies and organizations that we have. Um, one of the distinctions that we came up with at Lyft that I, that I like is whether you're, the decisions that you're trying to influence and improve with what you're doing are, um, are caused by you like changing a human decision or changing an algorithmic decision. And I think that that was one that, that is pretty valuable to think about. So if you're a data scientist that's improving algorithmic decisions, that, that means that you have to change the code that runs, you know, that powers your apps or websites or production processes in some way. And so that, that requires like having software engineering skills and interfacing with software engineers. Um, and then there's people who make improve decisions by interacting with humans in some way and maybe just convincing them through a chart or, th- or right. through, you know, a report that they write, or even just through a conversation that one course of action is better than the other. Um, and that's, that's fundamentally kind of like a different landing point for your, for your work and changes the way that you have to work in a pretty fundamental way. So uh, that, that's probably the most useful distinction that I would come up with. But I think that the title, the titles are probably the least useful way to think about the <laughs> distinction between, yeah, yeah. Bet- between the work. Yeah, no, but how you describe it, I wasn't aware of that distinction. So that definitely is, is a good way to maybe frame the two roles or role flavors that you might come across in tech. Um, so could you share maybe an example of an, of an exciting project that you worked on as a data scientist in your career so far? Yeah, uh, there's been a there's been a bunch of them. Um, maybe okay. So the one of the most ambitious ones that I worked on at Lyft, that, and I'd, I'd love to give a shout out to the team that I worked on that with, uh, which was called Decision Science Products. Um, and we when I when I first arrived at Lyft, the goal was to make we have a um, weekly planning process uh, at Lyft, which was to like decide how much money to spend to balance the market. So. Um, Lyft has this problem of that there's a supply side, which is drivers, and a demand side, which is riders. And if we have way more drivers on the road than we have riders, then there's there's uh, they all sit around and they don't make any money. Right. Um, but the riders have very fast pickup times because there's drivers everywhere. So sort of one, one, you know, one side gets benefits, but the other side doesn't. But if we have a lot of riders and no drivers, then all the riders are waiting and not getting rides. Um, and the drivers are making tons of money. So our, our goal is to manage that uh, that market and, and kind of balance it. So have the right number of drivers for the amount of riders that we're expecting. Um, and the way that Lyft manages that is by uh, spending money to stimulate different sides of the market. So it's almost like a little a little Federal Reserve bank internally <laughs> within the, the company. So we can we can send coupons to riders to try to create more demand, or we can send bonuses to drivers to try to create more supply. Right. Um, and so the, that, that's money spent that comes out of the budget. And so there's this planning process of deciding, you know, how much to spend on either side of the market. Um, so to create a plan like that, uh, you need to have an idea of what you expect to happen if you don't spend the money, which is which is a forecast. So we're going to say, hey, we're going to make a forecast of how many how many drivers will show up next week, how many riders will show up next week, and then kind of forecast your how much imbalance you're going to have, and then imply some course of action. We should spend this much money on this particular thing. Um, so I worked on, uh, for a couple of years, building a forecasting and planning system to, to solve that problem, um, which, which meant that we had to kind of integrate with all these systems. We had to be able to write, to, to, to do forecasts of all the different riders and uh, rider and driver behaviors. 
and to forecast what would happen under different scenarios, like if we spent more or less money on those different kinds of supply and demand levers, and then also to predict what would happen under different circumstances for different amounts of riders and drivers on the road um, based on the historical data. So all those problems individually are, are super challenging. <laughs> and then once you can solve them all, you can actually start to do something like a budget optimization. So start to think about, okay, well, what's the optimal mm. amount of these decision variables that we're gonna spend? Um, it was a really fun and ambitious project and really core and fundamental to the business that Lyft operates in. Um, and it, and it really, really did rely on a lot of different skill sets, including like, you know, being able to forecast these things that are pretty challenging to forecast. They have a lot of seasonal patterns and, and growth and, and different kinds of events that drive them. But also there's a causal inference uh, aspect to that, which is another thing I really enjoy working on, which is just, you know, if we spend more money, what will happen? Mm. And these, these what if questions are the kinds of questions that I really get excited about answering because they're, they're quite challenging to answer. So in, in this particular project, maybe if you could share maybe an example yeah. of um, sort of, I mean, what you described is sounds like a really big project with many, many different components. I'm sure it took quite a lot of time to yeah. take the project from beginning to end. Uh, could you maybe describe like a small or like one piece uh, that you worked on and sort of the kind of questions that the team was faced with and how you try sort of the, the options that you considered and how you resolve them? Uh, sure. And of yes, course, sir. without sharing anything confidential, of course. Um, but just to sure. kind of give, give a sense for like, you know, almost like, you know, what the day in the job is like. Yeah. So, um there's a lot of uh, a lot of pieces. That project took a long time, and there were a lot of pieces that were uh, that were hard to figure out how to do. One of the one of the things that was probably most ambitious about it was uh, most people, when they forecast things, forecast just one one thing at a time and treat the, treat each forecast as independent. Um, and which is which is something that we pursued for a while. So we have like you know for for. Uh, uh, for riders at Lyft, we will forecast how many sessions that they're going to have in aggregate, and, and then it's broken down by region. So we'd have you know some you know a couple hundred regions that we operate in, and then we'd want to make forecasts for how many different how many users will open up the app and check the price um, over the over the next week or the next thirteen weeks, actually more realistically. Um, so the we tried to do those forecasts like as independent things for a while. I re realized later that all those forecasts are kind of linked in an in interesting way. So we forecast riders and drivers separately, then that's worse than forecasting them in a joint model. Um, so one of the kind of fundamental decisions that we made early on that was a little bit difficult to, to do was to link all the forecasts in a, in a way that meant, meant made, the, made them internally consistent. I see. Um, and, and so that meant that we couldn't use really standard approaches that were available. So all the, you know, most of the time series forecasting stuff, which including stuff that I've worked on in the past assumes that you have a bunch of independent time series. Uh, we were trying to make them move together in, in reasonable ways. So when, you know, when demand goes up, then, uh, then price, you know, prices also go up because there's so much congestion in the marketplace would be a good example of. Of, of how the forecast would be linked in mm -hmm. some way. So that was something that required us to build a lot of custom uh, custom code to do and build a custom modeling framework to do. And, and that was a big expensive decision to make. So mm -hmm. often in data science, there's a sort of like trade-off between using off the shelf technologies or 
I could just, you know, download a package and solve the problem in a few lines of code or like build something from scratch where you have to make a deep investment and you might, you don't even quite know if you're going to be able to solve the problem because there's no example of a working version of that, of that thing. And so we took, we took the riskier option and I think it was, it it did end up taking a lot longer to do it that way. And it was something that, um, that caused a little bit of doubt in the people around me about whether we were going to solve the problem on a timely basis. Um, but it, but it was also the right way to do it. And it had clear benefits that we were able to kind of articulate in advance. Um, so, so a lot of data science projects have that sort of flavor of, you have to have some conviction about, Oh, I'm going to spend like, you know, extra time doing something that's more complicated. And I have to keep, I have to make sure I have a right justification Mm -hmm. (laughs) for all the time and complexity I'm I'm introducing, because I think it's going to generate these benefits in a way that we can, we can do something in a, um, that's that's going to like ultimately drive more business value. Yeah, I'm sure um, a big part of your job is just getting that buy-in from your your team to invest yeah. in that model. It's not, yeah, it's not even just buy-in is not like a one-time thing. Is a, was a big realization for that project. It was that you have to kind of continually maintain uh, trust, understanding, and buy-in from all your stakeholders on projects like that. Which which means like you know I talked about talking about the work really openly. <laughs> Right. Uh, you know, t- right. 20 minutes ago. That's that's exactly what you need to do on a project like that is keep communicating um, the, the, the progress that you're making, the setbacks that you're facing, um, and then continually um, educating people about what the benefits of what you're doing will be when, when it finally works. Um, all those are all those are kind of like very soft skills, but they're really important to the success of a data science project like that. Yeah, yeah. So actually, this brings up a really good point, which is that um, what you described definitely sounds like a highly data intensive project and also sounds like uh, you were in an environment where people understood that we, you know, data is kind of the backbone of the success of this project. It was helping inform a lot of decisions in terms of how the product was taking shape. And of course, you know, the data scientist has to do a good job in terms of earning trust of their team. Uh, but, you know, you know, I'm sure that the environments can vary from company to company and not all teams or companies might think about data similarly. So, you know, if you're a candidate, if you're interested in data science, is there a way for you to figure out how data science is viewed as a function internally? Uh, That's a great question. I think it's pretty challenging uh, to do that as an external candidate. And I've seen it on both sides, you know, both when 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 I was uh, thinking about joining the team that I ended up joining, uh, it took me a really long time to to build the confidence that so the, you know the system I just described to you uh, sounds complicated and like that people at the company would not expect it to work, mm-hmm. and I was very worried about that. I said, "Hey, you want me to come and build this thing and work on this complicated thing? Do you, do you really believe that you have the um, the social capital internally?" and the political capital internally to, to make something like that actually drive decision-making. Mm. And that was a big thing that I had to, I had to resolve in my head before joining. And right. then kind of on the other side of the marketplace where I'm trying to hire people, often they're, they're asking very good questions about what the, what's the role going to entail that sometimes I can't even, I, I can't answer. Um, or are we going to be able to, what are we going to be able to do with when I, you know, when I join your team and sometimes you can't make promises about that. Every company is very different, and it's and it's so hard to know in advance what, what you're getting into. Um, Lyft, Lyft is a place where 
uh, you know, there is a, a very science heavy input into the, into the way the company runs. And so it felt like, uh, it was, you could see the power structure was that when, when science had good ideas that they tended to get implemented or worked on, mm-hmm. um, I thought Facebook was, was like that too, but I've, but I've heard about other companies where, you know, maybe there's an engineering or a product first culture and the science can come second or third yeah. <laughs> to, to, to those things. And, and, um, I think that that's, that's really common in practice. So it's, I, you know, I don't know how to know in advance. I've only worked at two places, so I can't claim to be able to read, read the tea leaves about what kind of places are going to be the best to work, but talking to the other data scientists at the company and seeing the kinds of places that are able to effectively grow are probably good, um, you know, good proxies. If they're hiring lots of smart people that you respect, then they're probably doing something right. Mm. Um, and certainly your your individual hiring manager, the person who will manage you is probably the best uh, single thing to know about in advance before you end up at a company because they're the person that's going to be able to kind of get buy-in for what you'll be working on or maybe they've already gotten buy-in right. to do it. Um, yeah. But th- those are good questions to ask is like, you know, to what extent do you believe that the, you know, the company and the leadership are, are bought into what you want to do or what, what makes you convinced that... <laughs> Your, you know, the thing that we're going to work on is going to is going to get the buy-in um, in order to, to continue to continue to get resources, to, you know, to make it into products. Um, and in hearing them explain to you how they ended up kind of coming to that conclusion probably would be a useful thing to ask as well. Yeah, and and you mentioned a really important thing, which is that um, at Lyft, it seemed to you that it was a fairly heavily science-driven company, and the power structure seemed to suggest that that's how decisions were made. Is this something you sort of just sort of heard from people who worked at Lyft or like, how did you figure that out? Well, I, I didn't know in advance and okay. I, I tried my best to, yeah. to try to get a sense of that from the, from the person who hired me, but it was, it was a gamble. It, it could, it could easily have gone the other way. And, I, and I've seen decisions in places that I've worked and I've, uh, I've certainly heard other people one of the top complaints I get when I talk to people who work at other companies is that the leadership doesn't listen to their yeah. <laughs> suggestions or that they, you know, they did a lot of work on some science-based project that suggested one course of action. Um, and then the leadership did, did something different, or maybe they, you know, another thing that they say will, will be that the science was inconclusive and in that they were unable to draw a firm conclusion, but then people took the, you know, the ambiguity and used that to create their own, yeah. <laughs> their, yeah. their own, uh, uh, course of action that they wanted to make happen anyway. Um, so sci- the science role within companies often is in this weird role of, you know, not being, not having conviction or not have, not being willing to take uh, large, large risks or kind of suggesting more conservative courses of action. Um, and so it's, I think it's just difficult to know how the culture within a company is going to treat that, whether they're going to, you know, put stock in the, in the thing that took a long time and was expensive to produce the science or just kind of go with their guts. <laughs> and, and and there's an argument to be made that, the, you know, going with your intuition might be better in a lot of circumstances sure. where you're, you're facing a lot of ambiguity because the data can't really tell you the answer. And so maybe it's worth relying on people's instincts about what to build um, or what to, what to prioritize. So, so I'm pretty sympathetic to, to worlds where science is not the most important kind of role mm-hmm. within a company. But I, I, I do think, it, you know, it's, it's frustrating to people for sure. And it's very difficult to know without kind of either being somewhere or hearing from people about how the culture is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, would you say that there are certain kinds of products that lend themselves more to being highly data driven? So 
you know, I, I think some of the things that you're describing around ride sharing, what's the right balance in terms of the, you know, maintaining supply versus demand. These these seem like the kind of things where, you know, I can't imagine how you can do it without data. Like, you know, that, yeah. that probably plays a really important role and something that's going to keep changing all the time. Uh, so it has to be fairly algorithmic. So do you think maybe that's one way to potentially sort out what might be at least a better fit, you know, looking from the outside? Yeah, I, that's, a, you know, that's a really excellent point. And I wish I wish I had thought of it, um, which is that, yeah, certain businesses are just more, you know, more amenable to uh, to, to data data driven and data data driven and automated decisions than, than others. Yeah. Um, so one framework I have for that is that um, if you think about, um, okay, so data, I, I made the claim earlier that data science is both valued by improving decision-making. Well, then you'd want to have a lot of decisions. Uh, the more decisions you have, the better for, for da- data scientists. They want to help improve more decisions. So a stream of many decisions is important. So if you could think about like the volume of decision-making and then the individual importance of those decisions is another piece to it. And then how often, how much incremental value does data add to the making of that decision? Right, right. And, and then if you multiply all three of those things together, you might get something approximating like how much value could be created through, you know, uh, applying data to the, to the problem. But, you know, if you work in like fashion and you're, <laughs> maybe you're the head of J crew or something like that, yeah. it doesn't, you're not going to use data to really, right tell you what what clothes to make because um but it but it might be useful in you know optimizing your supply chain and making sure that you have enough uh exactly you have you have enough uh, pairs of pants in the in the store so so yeah it's i think that's one thing that's been a little interesting to me as i talk to people in other fields is that there are often parts of businesses that are really data focused that you wouldn't think of at first Mm. at first blush but but then like ultimately that is a big source of value for the company. So that inventory management is a, is a big one. Hmm. Um, and there's lots of companies that don't look like tech companies, but then have sort of nascent kind of data, data and engineering focuses in, in areas that you might not think about. Um, so that's, that's kind of like maybe worth, worth being open-minded <laughs> about what kinds of problems could exist. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 No, I, I think that's a very, very, it's a really useful framework in that, if ultimately it's about making decisions, how much value do you think having data will add to that sort of the, the equation you described? And the more data value adds, clearly data would become like a, a stronger function in that uh, sort of decision-making process. Yes. Uh, so that's a exactly. useful framework for, for candidates. Any any other questions? Like let's say someone is trying to recruit, uh, you know, you, you shared some ideas around how to how to suss out the importance of the function but other than that, do you recommend any other questions that candidates should be asking uh, during the interview process? Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I wish I had more intelligent things to say here because I, I honestly haven't been on that side of the job market enough times to, to know, to have a good sample to say, mm-hmm. to say much about it. I, I think that um, knowing that you'll be supported and data science is a role where the most common frustration that I see is that people are not given enough scope. So they, you know, they, they work on things that feel too small for them or not, you know, aren't going to be impactful enough to help them grow their careers um, or aren't intellectually stimulating enough. So things that aren't challenging or helping them uh, continue to learn on the job. 
which is a really important part of being a data scientist because the, the field is not static. You have to continually invest in learning. And if you're not given the opportunity to do that, I think people feel like their, their careers are kind of stagnant. Um, so both of those things are, are hard to know in advance, but they're ultimately going to be determined by the, you know, the manager that you will have. Does, does the manager have a, a media enough role for you? Is there enough scope uh, for, for what you're going to be doing to, to grow over time? And that, that would be something I would ask about is like, what's, what's this role going to look like in a year or two? And, and how, what's, the, what's the total value that I can add to the business that I'm joining? Um, and then the learning opportunities thing is kind of like, are, are there challenges? Are there unsolved problems uh, that, that you're going to need somebody to, mm. to work on? Or, or is there scope for me to learn on the job and to try new things that, I, that I'm not currently an expert in? Are you going to create the opportunities and time for me to be able to do that? Or, is, or am I going to be just like totally overwhelmed by uh, what we would call keeping the lights on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I, I think those two things are probably the biggest things that I would ask about because they're the thing. I think those are the reasons that people end up leaving jobs and companies is that they don't they don't have a good manager, they don't have enough scope, or they or they're not learning what they want to be learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have just two more questions, and then then I'll let you go. So sure. since you've been managing uh, people for a long time, can you share an example of a time when a candidate really dazzled you in the interview process? <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. And maybe that didn't happen. Maybe dazzle is too strong, but um, you know, maybe perhaps a candidate where you know they they kind of stood out from sort of uh, the typical application you might get. And I, I don't mean the resume, but sort of just just how they conducted themselves through the interview process and what they said and the questions they asked. Yeah, you know. Um, one of both of the companies I've worked for have really intentionally designed interview processes where, you know, any individual interview that I would be giving is only meant to kind of capture one, you know, one dimension of the candidate's performance. And then we're going to pull that information with everybody else. So, so very rarely is any information that I'm getting from an interview kind of like pivotal, like exactly the thing that gets somebody hired. It's just a small piece of, of all the information that's being gathered. Mm-hmm. Um, I have done, uh, I, I do. I ended up doing both, like what I would call an experience interview, so talking to people about their projects, um, and then techni- more technical interviews where there's a specific skill that's that's meant to be sort of uh, evaluated. Right. On the technical interviews, I think it's it's actually like really hard to stand out because the, the interviews are designed to sort of you know demonstrate that you're competent at a at a relatively uh, you know proficient at a technical skill, but not meant to kind of capture the upside to being mm. far better at that skill than. Mm-hmm. And the average person, so or then then what we're looking for. Um, certainly, in the technical interviews, there's people that are able to explain their thought process really carefully and problem solve, uh, you know, in an open way. It, may, it goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, right. kind of like explaining like how you're thinking, right. and uh, not just that you knew the answer to begin with. I, I always think that that's really impressive to see people kind of um, mm-hmm. solve thing, solve things in, on the fly. Um, even you know, and it doesn't even have to be fast. I think taking your time and uh, solving a challenging question is a, is always really impressive to me. Um, I think on the experience side, the thing I always really love is is seeing a diversity of of projects and problems that were worked on because it kind of shows to me that someone who's uh, who's been through a lot of different uh, you know has learned 
how to solve a problem multiple different times rather than learning one problem and then mm-hmm. trying to go solve that same problem many times. So I, I always love, a, you know, talking about like three or four different projects that are all like totally different from one another. And it gives the person this ability to kind of think about what was similar and what's different about what they worked on. Those are always really, you know, fun and exciting discussions. So, yeah. uh, so what, typically the advice I give people is if you re- if you want your resume to stand out, is like do different things on your projects so that I, I don't think that you, you know, maybe you just got good at one thing and kept doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's super helpful. So, I mean, this was extremely helpful, Sean. Would you recommend any resources for, you know, candidates who are interested either in learning more about data science as a field or for um, interview prep and just uh, getting the hang of, uh, of recruiting? Uh you know, I, I'm really reluctant to recommend like a any particular any one thing. I, I do feel like it's maybe like in line with the way I've answered a lot of questions so far is that there's a it's a learning process to both to get a job and to be good at a job are both learning processes. They're they're somewhat correlated, but not the same thing. But I the way the advice I always give people is to get interested in in what they need to be good at because if you can't be interested in it, then you're never going to be motivated. Um, to, to do it. So if I, if I said, go read this book and you weren't actually intrinsically motivated to read it, it wouldn't probably work in the first place. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the primary factor is like whether you think it's interesting. And so you have to be really interested in data science, which means kind of, fi- you know, finding stuff that's interesting to you. And so what I, what I would recommend is there's a, there's a variety of ways to do that. Um, there's, there's lots of great YouTube content. You can be watching videos or you can be reading books or you can be on Twitter and jamming with people, or you can be working on projects and that, that are kind of personal to you and things that you find interesting. But if you're not passionate about learning and finding yourself doing those things on your own without someone telling you to do it or just with the, without needing to get a job, uh, then, then I think it's going to be challenging um, to, to keep growing your career because it's, it's all about energy and managing how much energy you're able to put into that stuff. And the energy really comes from having like a deep curiosity for uh you know for the field that you want to get into yeah yeah i mean i cannot imagine a better note to end the podcast on it's about managing your energy which is i think is so true across everything but yeah yeah, thank you so much sean this was extremely helpful any anything else at all that you'd like to say to the listeners before we end no, I think I, I've done plenty of talking. I, I wish them all the best of luck. And I would encourage folks to, if they're interested and need help with anything, to, to reach out to me. I'm always happy to, to chat or you know respond to any question over email. So um, please, please do that if you, if you need me. Of course. Yeah. And uh, do you want to mention your, uh, you know, what's the best way to reach out to you if, if someone wants to? Uh, yeah. D- DMs on Twitter or on LinkedIn are, are totally fine. And I, I try, I don't get to all of them, but I try my best and always, always happy. If, especially if you have an interesting question that I haven't thought about before, I'll, you know, those are the ones that really stand out and I'm happy to, yeah. happy to try to do my best. That's the key, finding an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Sean. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the great question, Sonali. Take care. Bye. Bye.